We're beginning a, a new series uh, this week. It'll take us through the next couple of months. It's on the, the letter uh, that the disciple John wrote. Actually, he wrote three letters. He wrote a gospel and he wrote three letters to the, the church. And uh, we're going to look at the first one. We're going to look at 1 John for the next couple of months. And um, a number of people will be presenting, as, as, as always. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the mark, the mark of the Christian. Before we get there, though, um, let's, see, let's see how you do with this. Can you identify who would wear this? <laughs> Dave would, right? Okay, that's right, sure. This is uh, the mark of the Harley Davidson rider, right? Okay, how about this one? Amazon, there we go. All right, sure, an Amazon driver might have this on his lapel. How about this one here? Yeah. Any, any Philly fan, right? Because if you notice in this really cool logo, you got the football team, you got the baseball team, you got them all right there, okay? And you've got Love from Love Park, which is no longer in Love Park. They moved it, but anyway. How about this one? Who would wear this? Disney, very good. A Disney worker might have this on, on their lapel. And the question is this, as John is addressing second generation believers in his letter, what is the mark of the Christian? What is the mark of the Christian? What is the mark that identifies you to others as a Jesus follower? Is it a piece of jewelry like a fish or a cross? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Is it a WWJD bracelet? Is it the fact that you were baptized? Is it the brand of church that you attend? Or is it the person that you vote for? Is it where or how you give? What really identifies you to the world, to your friends and your neighbors, as a Christ follower? And maybe a more important question is, why do I even need to be identified as a Christian? Why can't I just go about my faith privately? You know, it's just me and God. And that's enough. Well, after his resurrection, Jesus gathered his disciples and he gave them a commission. And we call it the Great Commission. And the writer whose letter we will be studying for the next few weeks was there. Not only was he there when Jesus gave this, this Great Commission, but he was there at the Last Supper. So close to Jesus that he was leaning on him. He was there when when uh, he and his brother were really angry at some people that, that rejected Jesus, and, and they said, uh, Jesus, would you give us the power to call down fire on these people and just torch them? And Jesus rebuked them and gave them a new name. And they were the sons of thunder. It's a bit sarcastic. This was the person who at the cross was standing at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother, and Jesus looked at him and said, would you take care of my mother? He said, behold, son, your mother. Behold, mother, your son. This was John who took care of Mary after Jesus died. So John has this amazing connection with Jesus. And as a Christ follower, he was there when Jesus said, after his resurrection, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. John was there and he heard this. 
And Jesus said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. John was there. And the writer of our study here was marked as a Christ follower from that point on. In fact, in the book of Acts chapter 4, when he was confronted with why he was doing what he was doing, um, this is what he was asked. He was asked uh, by the religious leaders, by what power or what name did you do this? What was the reply? If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, and he's become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in nowhere else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then they called John and Peter in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speak about what we have seen and heard. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men were marked by Jesus. So what is the mark of a Christian? John, in his later years, is writing to these, these churches, and, and many of the churches were having second generation of believers that were coming up, and there were problems, as there always are problems in churches, right? And John's writing this letter to address some of those things and to remind them what the mark of the true Christian is. And so would you please turn, or you could type in 1 John, it's near the end of the New Testament if you're turning there. It's the second to the last section there. There's Revelation and there's three letters uh, that John wrote. And so here's the disciple and the apostle, the apostle who, is, who is answering this question for the greater church in the first century. What is the mark of a true Christian? John's very concerned about second generation believers and the erosion, the possible erosion of the foundation of their faith. And I believe that his concern and his message for them is for us as well. He lived in an increasingly pluralistic society as we do. Faith has a tendency to be diluted as it passes from one generation to another as it has in our days. The, the entire Old Testament is, pardon, pardon the pun, a testament to that fact that there's this downward force from generation to generation where the faith gets diluted and our passion begins to wane. It happens in every generation. How do we fight against that? How do we maintain the fire of our faith? How do we avoid Jesus' warning in Revelation 2.4 and, and not become those who have forsaken the love you had at first? This is John's concern as he writes this letter. How do we stick to the Great Commission in an increasingly antagonistic world that also needs salvation? Well, John points to three marks of the believer. 
We'll just look at one of them today. He points to three marks of the believer, three identifiers, and in a way, three evidences that Jesus is who he claims to be because it's coming out of his followers. Interestingly enough, in our English Bible, they all start with the letter L. Life, light, and love. Life, light, and love. As you read 1 John, and I hope you will as we go through this series, you're going to notice that John doesn't write like Paul. Paul was trained as a lawyer, so he was very logical, and he laid out his, his arguments very logically as he goes through Scripture. John, on the other hand, it's, he's, he's kind of like writing a symphony with these themes, and he keeps cycling back with different variations. So I was telling Janice this morning, yeah, 1 John, it can be really frustrating for some Westerners to read because it's not, it doesn't have this logical outline. John talks about life, and he talks about love, and he talks about light, and then he talks about love again, and then he talks about life again, and it, it kind of goes like that through 1 John. So don't get frustrated. It's a different kind of letter. And what he's saying is the Christian is marked by a life that's rooted, sourced in Christ. John says the Christian is marked by a love that is replicating the love that Jesus gives us. And the, the Christian is marked by a light that radiates from Christ and through us. Life, love, and light. And he begins his letter, if you're there at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he begins his letter in a similar way that he began his gospel. He's pointing to Jesus as the word of God, the one who was in the beginning of all things. I just want to real quick to show you how he began his gospel, John 1. Okay, John 1. This is the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not or cannot overcome it. That's the Gospel of John. Look at his letter. First John. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy, meaning your joy and our joy, all of our joy, complete. That's why I'm writing this, John says. Very similar to the beginning of his gospel. But written a few decades later, as the church was growing. In the next few verses, we won't read them, he speaks of the light of Christ even as he, did it, as he did in his gospel. And then in the next chapter, he begins to speak of the love of Christ. And then he swings around, he starts talking about them again more deeply, and we'll do the same thing as we go through this series. But to start, let's just look at these first four verses. 
Notice, first of all, that this is not just an introduction, like, hello. It's actually a proclamation. Three times in these short four verses, three times he says, we proclaim to you. John is shouting a truth. John is shouting a transforming truth to the churches. What are those three things? He's talking about life. He's talking about the life of Christ. He shouts these three truths. First of all, Jesus, guys, Jesus is real. He's real. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. He's the word of life. John is saying to the church, some of whom were thinking, and the Gnostic belief was beginning to infect some of the churches, where they thought Jesus was not really real. In fact, Jesus was a man, and the Spirit came down and was with him after he was born, but, but receded before he died. And, and John's saying, no, no, Jesus is, is real through and through. He lived in the flesh. There were false teachers that were teaching that since the body is inherently evil, there's no way God could be in a body. And John's saying, no, no, no. We heard him with our own ears. We saw him with our own eyes. We marveled over him with our own minds as we saw what he did, and we touched him with our own hands. Jesus is real. And the resurrection was not a spiritual, ghostly resurrection, but a bodily re resurrection. They heard him. They saw him. They wondered. They touched him even after he was raised. Remember when Jesus said to Thomas, the doubter, come over here and touch me. I'm not a ghost. Jesus is real. You know what that means? It means two things to us. Number one, when I am raised, I will be raised with a real body just like Jesus was. A real resurrected body just like his. But the second thing, and maybe we don't think about this enough, and I know I, I, know I don't. What John experienced... I'm going to experience one day. What do you mean, Dave? I'm going to hear his voice with my own ears. You're going to be able to see him with your own eyes. You're going to be able to touch him. You're going to be able to embrace the real Jesus and say thank you. You're going to be able to meet him, talk with him, thank him. And John's trying to impress this on these, these churches, that Jesus is not a concept, he is not a religion, he is a person, and he's real. And if you don't long for that day when you can speak to him and hear him and touch him, if you don't long for that day, then maybe you're just a churchgoer. That's one thing John was trying to impress on his people, on his churches. It could possibly be that you're not a Christian. If you don't long for the day to see him for real, then maybe your love has grown cold, like the church in Revelation 2. John doesn't really say it like this, but this is a wake-up call. Get back to Jesus because he's real. At the Last Supper, I mentioned it was John who was so close to Jesus physically close to Jesus. He actually leaned on him when they were talking throughout the dinner. And I imagine it's like, like when friends 
or at a game or, or when friends are, are together and they just put their arms around each other's shoulders and just talk. Here is John now as a writer reminding you and me that there's coming a day when we will be able to do that with our Savior. That's what it means when we say Jesus is real. And that should mark our lives. It should mark our lives. Well, he goes on about the word of life and he says that Jesus is life. He says, concerning the word of life, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. You're talking about Jesus being life. Jesus being life. Remember what he said in his gospel? In him was life. Did you know that anything that is alive is alive because of Jesus. Amen. Think about that. Anything that is alive, you, your dog, the trees, your garden, those in Christ who have passed are still alive. Anything that is alive is alive because of Jesus, because life was in him, and life is in him. Uh, Paul says in Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he was born physically first. The firstborn is the one who's an authority over the estate. That's what it means. So he's an authority over all creation. Why? Because in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Pretty much covers it. But he goes on. Visible and invisible. Pretty much covers it. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is before all things. He created all things, meaning he gave them life. He sustains all things. He holds it all together. In him is life. Anything that is alive is alive because of him. By virtue of his resurrection, he's also the eternal life. John says. You want to live forever? Think of all the things we try to do just to stay alive here and now. I think I take six supplements. I don't know if they're working. The advertisement said they should work. I shouldn't have a whole lot of joint pain and things like that. I know some of you work out, you know, you try to keep your body, you know, in shape because you want to you know, live as long as you can. But if you want to live forever, guess who you have to know? Jesus. Because in him is life. And thirdly, John says, Jesus is personal. He's real. He has life in him. And he's personal. Look at verses 3 and 4. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy, your joy, and my joy, our joy, complete. Fellowship. That's a deep, deep friendship where there's unconditional love and there's the ability to be uh, a vulnerable because there's an unbreakable commitment to one another. That's living. That's real life. That's satisfying life. And John says that's what marks a Christian. Fellowship with each other, a connection, a loving connection with each other because we have a loving connection with the Son and with the Father. Jesus is personal. He's just not stuck up on the stained glass windows. 
or on pieces of jewelry or in our theology books. We can have fellowship or friendship with him and with his father, and that makes our fellowship, our friendship, that much more joyful. John was writing to some churches that were breaking up. Their fellowship was breaking up because they've forgotten that Jesus is real and that Jesus is life and that Jesus is personal and Jesus is the center of what we do and why we do it. Isn't, isn't life so much better to do with friends? Life is so much better with friends. I was talking with a parent this week about his daughter's first few weeks of middle school. It was a new school for her. And do you know what the most terrifying moment is for a middle schooler? And for those of you who don't know, I teach middle school math. The most terrifying moment for a middle schooler is lunch. Because to walk into a lunchroom and to not know who you're going to sit with, to not know if any of your friends are there, or for this young lady, to not have any friends because it's a new school, that is absolutely terrifying. I had the first day of school, um, my class right before lunch ended, and I had one boy that was hanging around. He was new to the whole building. And he said, can I eat lunch in here? And, and I'm like, no, we're really, really not supposed to do that. He goes, I'm, I'm like, why? He goes, I just don't want to go to lunch. I'm really not that hungry. You know, and you can tell, you can tell when they're kind of making up some excuses. You know what it was? He was afraid to go to lunch. Who am I going to sit with? So I, I made sure he, he got on his way to lunch, and I grabbed my peanut butter jelly sandwich, and I thought, I'm going to go down and, and sit with them a little bit. I know he doesn't want to eat with me in front of his friends, but you know what? I got there, and he was. He was sitting alone. He was here, and there's a big row of nobodies. And so we sat down and started talking, and I pulled somebody else over. And, because it was a terrifying moment for him to live, to go through lunch without a friend. Second day, I, I went down just to check. And sure enough, there were kids that were gathered around him. So, so it was working out. But to go through uh, lunch, let alone, to go through life, let alone lunch without a friend, can be terrifying. But guess what? As a believer, you've been invited to a great lunch table. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. You've got friends in your lunch period. You've got the best people to do life with because they know Jesus and you know Jesus and Jesus and his father are at the table. And John is saying Jesus is not only real, he's not only life, he is personal. He's personal. We have a heavenly father and a loving savior and a community of faith, a family of friends that we can go through life with. They're struggling just like we are. You're struggling just like I am. And if we can be vulnerable enough in Jesus and admit that, we can experience victory in life. And John says we experience joy with that kind of fellowship. So the question is, is there evidence, is there evidence of life in your life? Are you marked? Is your life marked by the life of Jesus? And I'm not talking about if you believe things to be true. John says true believers are marked by his life. They're also marked by his love and marked by his life. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But 
believers are marked by the life of Christ. That's why he says in chapter 5, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It, go, it goes like this. I have a $20 bill. It's real. I've got a $20 bill here. I'm going to put it in my Bible. It's in my Bible. Now, I would never do this but because I love my Bible. But if I were to give this to you to be yours, if I gave my Bible to you to be yours, what else would you have? You'd have the $20 as well. It's as if life is in Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have life. He's real, he's life, and he's personal. We tend to forget a lot of that. PBS ran a show a few years ago called We'll Meet Again. And it was a documentary series that lasted two seasons. Each episode featured these uh, emotional reunions between people who lived through some monumentous, uh, momentous, maybe even terrible events. And um, the show brought them back together. They actually sought out people that they'd gone through these experiences with. And the show follows their journeys to find each other. They meet again and they share their experiences. And in every case, in every case, there was a mysterious bond between these strangers that found themselves in, in difficult circumstances, and that bond and their experience shaped their lives for decades, many, many of whom without ever meeting again the person they went through it with. Stories like the survivor from a Jewish ghetto in World War II who was searching for and eventually found the child of the couple who saved him. Or the woman who finds the helicopter pilot who rescued her from near certain death when Mount St. Helens exploded. And she was in that vicinity. Or the story of a man who finds and, and meets the Texas cowboy who saved him as a young boy in war-torn Vietnam and who inspired him to come to America for a new life. You know, if you know Christ... If you know Jesus, imagine the reunion. Imagine the reunion when you meet him. When your eyes, your ears, your hands, you get a chance to meet him. Imagining the life of Christ, the man who rescued you. I don't do that enough. My challenge to you is to imagine the man who gave you life. Someday you will embrace him. You will praise him. You'll thank him for saving your life, even as Sue thanked the helicopter pilot who rescued her from Mount St. Helens. That pilot gave her life. Our Jesus gave us more than just physical life. He gave us spiritual life. He gave us eternal life. And that, that hope of that meeting 
with our Savior should shape our lives right now. Even as those who were rescued from war or disaster were marked for decades, knowing that we're going to the one who gave us life, that hope should shape us. It should shape the way we deal with our anxieties. It should shape the way that we deal with our disappointments. It should shape the way that we we walk through trauma, knowing that our Lord and Savior walked through trauma, and he's going to bring us through. It should shape the way that we celebrate and what we celebrate. The fact that he gave us life should shape the way we pray. It should shape the way we reach out. He gave us life. We need to give others his life. You see, his life marks us. John even said later on in his letter, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall see him with these. We shall see him as he is. How should that shape us? How should that mark us? All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Let's pray. Intensify, Jesus, our longing to see you. As we prayed before the message began, move aside the things that cloud our vision, that occupy our hands, that, that um, just flood our ears, that keep us from seeing, hearing, knowing, reaching out to you. God, we sang before this message was even preached. It's your breath in our lungs. You are life. You are love. You are light in our darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. God, through your son, mark us with a fantastic, victorious, triumphant, life-giving Mark, that comes directly from Jesus. We do pour out our praise to you because it's your breath in our lungs. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.